I pulled out a lesson and redid some of the work on it from something I did a couple of years ago in a couple of classes here. And it's about America's Thanksgiving. It's to understand what our Christian heritage is. I think we lose track of that, especially in today's secular world. I think it is important to understand what God has done and what we can be thankful for. In fact, how many of you have already heard the sermon for this morning? How many of you have not yet heard the sermon? So it's on intentional gratitude from Psalm 100, and I think this will help just solidify some of that down. So, uh, oops, well, I thought my electronics were going to work, but I think because it's not plugged in, it may not. I may lose the whole thing. Well, in any case, let's see if I can, I don't know that I can even get down to what I'm, I've got a map on here. I want, I'm playing Terry Fakes this morning, so I was going to give you a map to, to look at. I'll see if I can get to that, but all the rest of it's on your notes. So what we want to do first is we want to ask ourselves always the question, just when we're teaching, I love the way Cliff does it, at what piece are we in? You know, there's four important questions to ask. Cliff always reminds us of it. What four questions are we always going to ask ourselves? Is there a God? If there is a God, what is his nature or his character like? Third question, if there is a God, what can we expect from God? And if there is a God, what is he going to expect from us? Those four. This morning, we're going to look at what can we expect from God. We're going to look at that question a little deeper. A couple of things to, to uh, start with on your notes. I think the first fill in the blank, and everybody always wants to do the fill in the blanks, but all Christians can expect to have a divine calling. A divine calling. That divine calling is in many places in Scripture, but the one I chose here was Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. We have obtained an inheritance according to the counsel of his will. So we have to recognize that when we come to Christ, part of our inheritance is this understanding what God's called us to. Now, groups, and certainly back in the time and period we're going to talk about, the Puritans were one of them. They, were, they spent a lot of time trying to understand what God's will was in their life. And sometimes I think we can overbrain that. There's a lot of things that we already know the will. Things like, should we pray? Yes, that's God's will. Should we tithe? Yes. Those are things that we don't have to ask about. But the specifics about sometimes we go, well, what is God's really calling for me? As an example, in my own life, I came to Christ in my early 20s, early to mid-20s, and I knew that whatever had happened to me, that God had called me to be a teacher at some point. I didn't understand that. I did hear the calling. Uh, in fact, I thought maybe it was back into teaching schools. It never ended up being that way. I pushed that way a couple of times, and God shut those doors. But for my own life, I recognized that, which was an unusual calling to me because I was fearful at that point of getting up in front of others. And I thought, somehow, I've got to overcome that. I could give you a whole testimony on how that occurred, but that was the calling that I have sensed all my life as a kind of a cornerstone. So we can look again at many examples. I give one here, and I also give you another verse, or I think 2 Timothy 1.9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Very specific that we're called. Uh, I use Moses here as an example. Actually, I use that versus Pharaoh because the two verses are interesting. If you read Exodus 3.10, that's Moses calling from God. Uh, where was Moses standing when he got called, by the way? Next to the what? The next to the burning bush. So that was an interesting calling. We're not all called next to a burning bush, but Moses was. And God says to him, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. That was Moses calling for the rest of his life. He led the people of Israel. That was a very strong calling. What did Moses respond to that calling? I can't do it. I don't think so. God, you called the wrong person. Anybody ever felt that way? That's an interesting thing that happens to many of us. Gideon felt that way. God says, 
Not only are you not going to get the people that you've got, I'm going to get rid of most of them because I want you to see that your calling, in fact, the, the next step to, to fill in there, God equips those he calls. That was a lesson that I had to learn, that God equips those he calls. But I wanted to go back and read that versus Pharaoh that I put in there. Exodus 9.16 sounds like a calling. God says to Pharaoh, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong one. Exodus 9.16, but for this purpose, I have raised you up, speaking to Pharaoh. For this purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name be proclaimed in all the earth. That was a calling to a secular man, a man who did not believe in God. Many secular people get called by God and don't recognize her to get used by God because God is in charge of everything. Nothing happens that he is not aware of. And so we have a divine calling we need to recognize that our divine calling is into the, 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 the ministry, whether it's, you know, the great commandment, go and make disciples. I mean, we're all called into that. But whatever it is, we've got unbelievable amounts of people here in this church that feel called specifically into ministries that we get exposed to. And the great thing about the leadership of this church is it says, if you're called, we want to help. We want to come alongside you. We're not going to, you know, the stuff that we do as a church, the church leadership doesn't figure out. It's people like you and I that get called to come to God or come to the church leadership and say, hey, I think I've been called out. Good. We'll support it. That's unbelievably different than most churches. If you've not been in a lot of other churches, that doesn't normally happen. The ministries are not normally driven by the lay people. This is very unusual for this church. But again, a holy calling by God is what God promises. That's what we can expect from God. The second thing is God equips those he calls. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, I quote there. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. May, now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Equip you with everything good that you may do as well. What does God promise? I will call you with a holy calling and I will equip you to complete that call. We can, we can bet our lives on that issue, that we have that for an inheritance. I don't think a lot of us understand that. We look to others and say they are called. We see their calling. I don't see the calling on my life. We all have a holy calling. The challenge is, is we don't recognize how the interaction in the secular world about us, how that calling gets worked out. It may be that your calling is in your workplace. It may be that your calling is to, you, to your neighbor. It may be that your calling is to your family. But we all have holy callings. Know that we will be equipped to meet those callings. So what I wanted to do today is I want you to see how this plays out. I give you an example here because our country, when you read our history today, they at least still include this, that in 1492, who sailed the ocean blue? Christopher Columbus, right? But I don't think most of us understand the true history of what happened. So the first thing I want to talk about is the, the, the discovery of our nation. As Terry Fakes would like to say, I'd like to tell you a story. <laughs> he always uses that. I always know that Terry's speaking when he does that, and he does such a good job. Now, he doesn't use any notes. That's not going to be me. I still have notes to use. So Christopher Columbus, we recognize, I mean, what do we know about Christopher? What do you know, what do you think you know about the history of Christopher Columbus? Anybody? Just from your history. What's that? He's a sailor. Okay, what else? He sailed. What? What else? Oh, he failed. He failed? Is that what you said? Failed. Yes, he failed. How, what did he fail? Ran into a continent. So that's interesting. That's what they teach us. I'm not sure 
that he failed because I'm not sure that's what he thought he was supposed to be doing. That's what we've been taught, though. Go ahead. What else? What did you say? All right. So did he think, did we think the world was flat at that time, 1492? Did, world, did Christopher Columbus think that? I was taught that, but that, in fact, is not true. Christopher believed the world was round. He was a cartographer, so he had access, in fact, helped make up some of the world's maps. And they fully believed the world was round. In fact, Aristophanes, a Greek from a couple of thousand, thousand years before, I think, uh, maybe, maybe 1,500 years before, he had calculated the circumference of the Earth to within 10% of its true value. And Christopher was aware of that. So he knew that value. They knew about how far it was. They even knew how far it was around to the, because he was going to go which direction? West. But they knew to the east, they could go all the way. Marco Polo had gone all the way over into China. So they knew how, about how far that was. They had some idea what they would have to do going the other way. And they actually kind of fooled themselves. He, he was convinced that it wasn't that far. Because when you look at his numbers and his logs, you realize he thought he had made it to the Indies. That's why he called it the West Indies. But he thought he'd made it all the way around to Japan when he dropped in uh, to uh, the first island there. What else do we know about him? What else do we think we know? Anything? So here's an interesting thing. I'm going to, we have a log book that was translated, really it was, I think, in the 50s, uh, maybe 60s, 1950s, 1960s, so not that long ago. And this, a lot of this material, by the way, if you want to do some follow-up and, and read more material on this, because I'm giving you just a brief, I'm hoping I'll whet your appetite. It's written by a gentleman by the name of Peter Marshall. Anybody know who Peter Marshall is? is that, what, who was Peter Marshall? He was what? He was chaplain of the Senate. That's who I thought this was. It's actually his son. This is Peter Marshall Jr. wrote a book called, uh, called the um, uh, Light and the Glory. The Light and the Glory is the name of the book. Peter Marshall Jr. was also a, a uh, chaplain. He came to Christ a little later in life. He was almost like Billy Graham's son, Franklin, in the fact that he was a rebel. And uh, really, uh, he went against his dad, Peter, and Catherine, his mom, for a long time, but in his 20s came to Christ and then really got excited. Peter Marshall Jr., Peter Marshall Sr. was the chaplain. That's how we, we know a lot of his writings. He died uh, at, at 46, so that would have been, I think he was born in maybe 02, somewhere in the, in the early 50s is when he died. His son just died in 2010. So again, just to put in perspective, but I would encourage you to look back at that book it's a good read um, on the history. It, ta it talks about our history from 1492 up till about 1790. Anyway, this is what the logbook said. It was the Lord, this is Christopher Columbus. It was the Lord who put in my mind that I should sail to the Indies. All who heard of my project ridiculed me. There is no doubt this came from the Holy Spirit for the execution of the voyage to the Indies. I did not make use of intelligence, mathematics, or maps it is simply the fulfillment of what Isaiah had prophesied. Have you ever heard that before? And if you dig in deeper, by the way, he did think he was going to the Indies, but he doesn't, didn't think he was going there just to get spice. As far as I can see, as far as this material tells me, Christopher Columbus was a believer. Now, 1492, you have to think about your history. The Reformation had not yet occurred. Martin Luther doesn't write the Reformation, the 92 Thesis, until when? 1517. We just celebrated the 500th anniversary of that last year. So 1517. So again, about 20 years later, that occurs. But Martin Luther would have been born about this point. I don't know when he was born, but it was about 1490. And anyway, Christopher Columbus, as far as I can tell, was a Christian. He felt a strong calling on his life. I'm going to read you just a little bit of the Isaiah piece. Uh, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. This is in Isaiah. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Christopher Columbus said that was his life verse. He felt 
the calling to sail to try to take the gospel message to people who would not have heard it. Now, the challenge was, in 1490, what did we know? We only knew east towards overland. We did not know west. And the furthest they had sailed out was about 300 miles. They would sail out that far, afraid if the land was flat, they were going to fall off, or that it was just going to be too far. There was nothing out there. They couldn't take enough supplies, and they'd sail back. They didn't have any kind of navigational. They didn't even have a sextant at that time. They had three things to sail with. They dropped, they had a compass, so they, had a, they, they knew which way they were going, and they had an hourglass that was, a, actually it was, I, I don't remember if it was an hourglass or a 30-minute glass, but somebody on board the ship was responsible to turn it every 30 minutes or an hour exactly at the time so they could keep track of the time because they had to know what the time was to be able to know how far out they were. And the third thing they had was a knot meter. And this is where knots come from. They had a rope that had knots tied in it at certain lengths, and they'd put a float on it, and they would throw it over the edge of the ship, and the guy would let the knots trail out along the edge of the ship so that they knew the ship was so long, and when the knots had cleared the length of the ship, they knew they'd moved so fast, so many knots, in that period of time. Does that make sense? And they only, so we call that today, we still can do that, but it's called dead reckoning. We have a compass, and we know our speed and our direction. And they take, and they, you plot every 30 minutes which way you're going, and hopefully you're going to get where you want to go. That's a challenge when you're in the middle of the ocean, and you're in the middle of a storm, and you go, I don't know which way the storm's blowing me, because I can't do all those things. I can barely look at a compass. I can't do the knots, right? And, I, and the time I, I'll keep going with. Well, nobody had done, nobody had sailed yet. It's interesting to me that the Lord put all of this timing together. When you see the Lord's hand, when you don't see this from a secular viewpoint, but a Christian viewpoint, you begin to see the Lord's hand. He waited to allow the, the, the European nations to find the new world. He waited until the Reformation was ready to happen. Because otherwise, what would we have ended up with in the new in, in America? We would have ended up with the problems they had in Europe. That religion would have come across mostly the Catholic religion. I mean, the two major there were three major religions going on. It was really the Catholics, it was the Mormons, uh, the Islams and uh, uh, Islamic nation, and also uh, the Jewish nation. Those three really interacted with each other. But we would not have had the Christianity come to our shores had it not been in this little window of time. Do you remember NASA back in the 60s when we were trying to get to the moon? And they'd get ready to do a shot, and, and you'd hear on TV that we have a certain small window of time. When you look at what happened in this period of time, about 1490 up through the the 1600s, there was this small window of time that things had to happen in just the right manner. Everybody could say that's coincidence. We as Christians don't see it that way. We call it the what? The, the hand of God involved in man's affairs. So again, here's Christopher. He goes out. By the way, the thing that God illuminated to him, the idea that he had that nobody had figured out yet, was instead of sailing from Europe across, because there's headwinds coming across, and you can't sail into them, they couldn't go very far, he realized from his mapping that the winds tended to push out towards the west if you sailed south first. So he sailed down to the Canary Islands first. The French had already sailed down into that area, and so he said, I'm sorry, Portugal had sailed down in that area, so he sailed down there first, thinking that those winds could get him across and he could come back on the northern winds. Nobody's ever thought about it. We look at it and go, duh. But we have satellites, right, and those kinds of things. That's how he got here, was he was the first to realize, and he said, God put this in my mind. I did not do it by man's thinking. This was what God put in my mind. I don't think we're taught that, that Christopher was a believer that really understood God's calling in his life. So... Uh, Christopher, by the way, his, his name, 
Christophus and, and Pharaoh really means Christ bearer. That's a Greek name for Christ bearer. I find that interesting because he was called to that. So um, again, just a little quick history in the map. I'm not going to bring it up, but the Iberian Peninsula. Anybody know where the Iberian Peninsula is? What is the Iberian? It's Spain. So if you say if somebody says Iberian Peninsula to you in history, you can just go. That means Spain. It's really Spain and Portugal together, but Spain and Portugal, and the Christians had, or I'm sorry, the, 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 yeah, the, the, the Christians, but through the Catholic Church, had populated out through Europe. And um, the, the, in fact, when Paul was doing his missionary journeys, there's mention of the fact that he thought he ought to get out to the Iberian Peninsula because there was such a large Jewish contingent already in Spain. Well, that was a long way away from Jerusalem, right? But the second major contingency of the Jewish nation was really in the Iberian Peninsula. They'd sailed the Mediterranean. It's where Morocco is, across the Straits of Gibraltar, right in that area. And in the 700s, the Islam nation had come up through North Africa and had invaded and had taken over the Iberian Peninsula, all of Spain. They had moved up into France about halfway and were defeated and pushed back. But for the next 700 years, the Christians then worked to recapture the Iberian Peninsula. And it had, there were about 500 little city-states in the Iberian Peninsula, and they had all ended up kind of being conglomerated together as they were slowly pushing back. Uh, the, the, and it was called the, the, the Moor Wars. You've heard of the Moor Wars, right? Well, the Moors were the Islam people, and they were trying to push them back. And it ended up that there were two major states that formed out of all these small ones. One of them was run by King Ferdinand, and the other one was run by Queen Isabella. And the two of them decided to marry to form up a single state for strength. That's the history of how we got to where we were in 1492. Well, another thing occurred is in 1492, he had to have money to make the voyage. They would not fund the voyage because they were fighting this more war for so long. And they said, when it ends, we will look at funding the voyage. So guess when it ended? 1492. That's the reason Christopher was, again, you look at God's hand and putting all these pieces together. Now, another interesting piece is God involved the Jewish nation because we're not sure whether they did willingly or whether it was confiscated from them, but the Jewish nation, the Jews in Iberia, funded the voyage. They either, there's some history that shows two or three uh, uh, major business people who were Jewish said, we will help fund this. Uh, there is some thought that because when Queen Isabella was, when she said, hey, I, I'm interested in funding this, Christopher said, I want 10% of everything that we find. She said, well, I'm not going to give you that. So there's some thinking that she really didn't fund it. But uh, she finally realized, no, this is really the thing to do. But she needed the money. She didn't have the money. And so the other thing that happened in 1492, it happened the day he sailed, was four months previous to that, the queen and king had decreed that all Jews must leave Iberia. If they had not converted to Catholicism, conversos, they were called Moranos, non-converted, and they were forced to leave. And they literally were just trying to find boats anywhere so that they could get out of there because otherwise they were going to be tortured and killed. And when they left, guess what they had to leave behind? All their fortunes. And guess what Queen Isabella took? All their fortunes. And so they either funded it directly through her through the Jewish confiscation or through these other Jewish men. But again, you see God's hand pulling this all together. I think that we need to understand where we came from and how God worked in our nation or we really miss our Christian heritage. So that's Christopher. So he ends up, uh, he, he uh, let's see, he ends up coming all the way over. The first place he drops into is the island that he names, San Salvador, San Salvador. That was the first, means holy savior. And the challenge, what was interesting to me, and we see it in the Old Testament all the time, God would bless his people, and what would they do? What would they do? I can't hear you. What would they do? 
turn away, turn away, right? They go, well, look what we've done. And what would God do then? He would discipline them through either famine or economics or uh, pestilence or wars or whatever. And what would the people do? They turn back. It just cycles, right? So Christopher Columbus, who felt called and equipped to go and bring salvation to other peoples, he had a really big problem in his life. His problem was pride. And Satan uses whatever he can against us. Christopher finds the new nation is suddenly glorified. In fact, he was the only person to ever come back where the king, where he comes into the king and queen's presence. Back then, they would come into the presence and then they would bow to them. The king and queen actually stood for him. It's the only time that anybody had ever recorded that that had happened with the king and queen. So he's this highly exalted guy and he gets full of himself and he loses track of his calling. And really, God ends up not being able to use him the rest of his life. It's a very sad story after he discovers the Americas. And in addition to that, God uses the whole nation of Spain in their greed to go after gold instead of going after the gospel. But what's really interesting is God uses that greed to keep the Spanish group in the southern part through the Caribbean area, and they come up into Mexico, into the Incas and the Aztecs. That's where they came into southwestern United States. They, came, came, they stayed away from the main body of the United States. The French also got involved. By the way, England didn't want to be involved in this at all. They didn't see any value in this. And the French come along, and they get attracted to greed also. And what do they go after? They go after Canada because they want all the, all the fur trade. And so what's left undone? The Spanish try to settle out Florida, but are unable to do so because of the bad conditions. And nobody deals with this middle part. And all of a sudden, God's got it all set up. He's keeping the people who do not have his gospel message in sight. He keeps them out of the way. And then he brings in first the Jamestown, actually the Roanoke, a plantation tries to succeed. We, it gets lost somewhere. We don't know what happens to it. But it, it, uh, it, it you know, you, you're sending people over. The first thing I do is figure out how to survive. They don't have any food. If new ships don't come with new food, you know, the ships maybe come every six months. The ship would show up and they go, where is everybody? The Roanoke group just were gone, right? So they bring in the Jamestown group. The problem with the Jamestown group was they were there for profit from England, but they were there for profit. God allowed them to succeed. It was a challenging success. They lost 80% of their people in the first two years. And, but Jamestown gets his foothold. It looks to me as if God allowed Jamestown to succeed because if they don't succeed, it looks like Spain is trying to come in right behind. And England has declared the whole continent in between Canada and Florida as English territory. And they only get to keep that if they can keep somebody on it. Otherwise, somebody else gets to claim it. God allows Jamestown to come along and claim it, even though he's not, quote, the chosen people. And then the next group to come along is a group that we call the pilgrims. And when did they come? So, so Christopher, so we, we've done this discovery of, we've gone through 1492 to, when did the pilgrims come? 16, 1620, 1619, 1620, and the pilgrims come, and so you've got about 130 years, and it looks like God's not involved at all. It looks just terrible. I mean, the Spanish people are killing everybody they find for their gold. French aren't doing much better. Jamestown's in place, but it's not doing very well. And you go, God, is your hand really here? So you can lose track of, you know, here's Christopher. He led him to get it started, but he's preparing the way. He's getting things set up. The pilgrims, their background is they're from what country? England. But what was their challenge? The church, by the way, the Church of England had split from the Catholic Church. So it was called the Anglican Church now. 
and that really started under Queen Elizabeth. And that, that um, I'm sorry, it started before her, but she, she was the one who really uh, was able to solidify that and get away from the Pope. But in any case, the, in, in their mind of the pilgrims, they were called separatists because they believed that the Church of England could not be reformed. They could only be redone. They had to totally get away. And they were so persecuted that they actually went to Holland first to get away. And from Holland, they finally, they, it, they were in such dire straits, they decided that it would be better to go over to this new world. Again, God put circumstances in place, kind of motivating them in that direction. And they go over and they actually are going to have a couple of ships that they're going to sail on. We know it. Uh, uh, we, we know that they came over on which ship? Mayflower. But the Mayflower, there was really another ship involved. And God, through his divine circumstances, got the other ship out of the way so that all the Mayflower people had to get on one single ship and learn to live together for about 70 days. It's how they bonded so tightly together. Only about a third of them were really pilgrims. The other two-thirds were support personnel to try to help this colony get started. They, when, they get, when, they, when they come all the way over on the Mayflower, they end up blown off course, and they had come over under the, Virginia, uh, under the Virginia Charter, which was the same town as Jamestown. But again, the Virginia Charter was so, so off-kilter to what God could use for the gospel message that what he did is he had the, he had the pilgrims blown to the north, they ended up where they came into shore, were outside the Virginia Charter, and they said, we've got a problem. We're not chartered under anybody. We have no civil authority over us. And that's why they stopped and wrote the Mayflower Compact, to have this civil idea of how are we going to live together and work together. But they were highly motivated. They come in, it's because they're late arriving, it's late in the fall, and in the fall, they've got a whole winter to get through. They can't do anything, so they end up staying on board the ships for the winter, and half of them die. And they get to the next spring, and it's about March, and they're thinking, we are in desperate straits. We don't have farmers amongst us. We really don't know how to, to, to do the things we need to do to survive. God... We need a miracle. And they begin to pray. And one sunny March day, they see, and, and, and the Indians were pretty hostile at this point because we'd been so bad to them for that 120 years. They Originally, they were very nice to us, but we started killing them, and so they got really uptight with us and, and started pushing back on us. And so they were hostile Indians, and so they were always concerned to try to have lookouts, and they said, there's an Indian coming. And somebody said, an Indian or Indians? No, there's an Indian. This guy comes walking up the path. His name is Samoset. He walks up, knocks on the door of the palisade. They open the door. They look at each other. He's a redskin in a loincloth. I just want you to get this picture. They're in desperate straits, and you know what he does? He says, welcome, in perfect English. What would you have done? What would you have done? They go, who are you? So he tells the story. He said, well, he said, I'm uh, an Indian who likes to adventure out. He said, I've been helping along the eastern coast up through Maine, and the, and the ship captains that come in, I'm helping them understand the coastlines, and so they've taught me English. So he had perfect King's English. So they chatted for a little bit, and they said, well, we're really confused with where we are and the fact that there's nobody around us. It looks like there was somebody here at one time, but there's nobody here now. And he said, well, he said, as a matter of fact, you're on the, I'm not gonna say this right, Patexit, I think, was the name of the Indian tribe. Tribe, And he said, they were a tribe that hated the white man and killed you every time you came on shore here. But four years ago, a, a, a plague came through, and that plague wiped out 100% of the population of this tribe. And it was so devastating that the other tribes outside of here thought that a curse was on the land and stayed away from it. That's why this land is so good and uninhabited. And in fact, about a fourth of it was already tilled. In other words, it had been cleared so it could be farmed. 
You don't think that's not God's hand preparing the way? It gets better. Samuset leaves, and he says, I'll be back. And he comes back, and he brings a gentleman with him, and that gentleman's name is Squanto. Couldn't remember the name, Squanto. Anybody ever heard this story on Squanto? Yeah, th this is an unbelievable story. So Squanto, he comes in and he speaks perfect English. But he's a Patuxent Indian. And, he said, and, and they said, well, wait a minute, we thought you all died. Well, everybody did, except for me, because I was not here. He had a story of a Joseph in the Old Testament. When he was very young, he was captured by some of the traders that were coming across, some of the English traders, and they would capture some of the Indians. They would take them back to England, teach them English so that they could learn, they could then communicate with them and learn about the land. They were trying to use them to spy on the land, basically. So he was captured once, sound like Joseph, right? Taken to England, taught English. <clears throat> he eventually comes back with a trader about four or five years later to the, to the Americas again, and he's here a very short period of time, and he's captured again. This time he's captured in slave trading, and he's taken by a slave trader back to the European coast to be sold off. Sound like Joseph? I mean, it's such a good parallel that he then ends up uh, being rescued by some friars who rescued this whole group of slaves out of the bottom out, and the friars then teach Squanto, guess what? Who Christ is. And he becomes a Christ follower. So now you have God preparing this Indian who's from this land where the pilgrims are, who now knows English and also knows Christ. And Squanto, when he came back the second time, he found, a, and he'd arrived six months before the pilgrims did. You don't think God's hand's not in this. He arrives and ends up that he uh, finds out nobody's there, that his total population is gone. His nation no longer exists. How would you have felt if you were Squanto? You come back, and there's nothing. Say you lived in Edmond, and you went away, and you came back to Edmond, and it was all gone. And all the people that you knew were gone. And yet he had come to know who the Lord was. So he's going, Lord, what's going on? I don't understand. And he ends up wandering down into this other tribe nearby just to be with him. And it was there that he ended up, Samoset ends up finding him. And so he goes and, and gets Squanto because he says, you can speak English also, brings him back. And the next week, they then meet each other and Squanto realizes this is God's calling on his life. That God has called him for such a day to help these people, these pilgrims who have no concept on how to survive. And he becomes God's instrument of salvation to the pilgrims. He teaches them how to, to hunt, to fish. He teaches them, more importantly, how to plant corn how to take a five-foot square piece, put about five kernels in the center, you put three fish down for fertilizer, then you have to stay there for about 20 days guarding it because the wolves want to come in and eat the fish. Eventually it decomposes and the corn grows very well. They got a crop out that year that was their salvation. And in October, the pilgrims said, we're going to declare a day of thanksgiving. That's the story, that's the rest of the story that you probably haven't heard. So they have this day of Thanksgiving. Uh, he invites actually this tribe that was nearby, the, the Massasoit tribe that, that uh, was nearby. And uh, I think Massasoit was actually the chief of this tribe. I don't remember all the names. But anyway, he invites them in because that's where Squanto and, and, uh, and Samoset had been, had been residing themselves was with this tribe. Squanto's now been living with them full time with the pilgrims for this period from March up through the, the October harvest. And so Massasoit's invited in, the chief's invited in, but just like any good in-law, guess what he brings with him? 90 other people. And the pilgrims think, well, we really, you know, 
we really don't have enough. We barely have enough to get through this coming winter in our stores. We want to thank God, but if we use all our food today, we're in trouble again, right? Again, the comment was made in the piece I was reading, how easy we forget who provided what we have. How easy we forget and we start leaning back on our own understanding. Well, interestingly, the chief had told his tribe, don't come unprepared. They brought plenty of food for themselves. They, they had such a good time. They, they, uh, they enjoyed the food. They made a lot of, they, they showed the pilgrims how to do some food. The pilgrims showed them how to do some food. They ended up having games through that period of time. They had such a good time that they decided not to leave. The Indians stayed for three days and celebrated the first Thanksgiving. Anybody have in-laws like that? <laughs> but that... That was, and, and, and they ended up in a treaty, even though that all the rest of the East Coast had hostile Indians, the pilgrims ended up in a 40-year treaty with Massasoit and his tribe, and therefore they were protected for 40 years. Now, eventually, just like Israel, we forget who is our salvation and who our good things come from, and they started to turn back to their own thinking and not realizing that God had used the Indian nation for their salvation. They began to fight the Indians again and began to kill them again. And actually, King Philip's War started in about 1680 or 16, yeah, about 1680, so about 60 years in. So the, the treaty had lasted 40 years. God, though, had prepared just the right people, just the right circumstances, equipped them, so that they could survive on this new nation. The, the, it ends up that most of our spiritual heritage comes not through the separatists, but through the Puritans. They came also from England. The Puritans said, we don't want to make up a new church. We want, a, we want to revive the Church of England. But they realized it had gotten so bad they couldn't revive it, so they ended up coming to the, to the Americas to be able to fulfill what they felt God had called them to do in their own religious worship and so forth and how they lived. And it was through the Puritans that much of what we have as our Christian heritage comes through. But the Puritans, although prepared to covenant and to do whatever it took to survive, they ended up just north of the pilgrims and they were able to look at the pilgrim group that had not grown very large, didn't become, it becomes kind of our standard to look for for Thanksgiving, but the pilgrims ended up being the model for the Puritans to follow so that they would know what to do themselves. So God's hand starts with Christopher, works the Spanish south so that they can't get into the Americas, works the French north, puts the English into, into this center part, but puts the English through two religious groups, the pilgrims and the, the separatists and the Puritans, that becomes our heritage. So again, I think it's important that we teach properly God's hand on our country. Um, that's the early settlement. If you look then and see what's happened since then, officially, Thanksgiving was proclaimed a national holiday by whom? Did anybody know? Anybody know when it occurred? When was a dark point in our country? Remember, God takes the Israelites, and he gets them to turn back to him only during the really tough times. When was the really tough time for this country? Civil War. And it was in 1863 that Abraham Lincoln said, we need to declare an official day of Thanksgiving. The New England states, by the way, had been having a day of Thanksgiving themselves every year in October, or in, in, uh, in October, November, in that period of time, ever since they had really settled up into that area. That had become a state, a state tradition for them, but it wasn't a national tradition. Abraham Lincoln says, No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gift of the Most High God. You should go back and read his proclamation of 1863. You should read it to your children. You should read it to your grandchildren this Thanksgiving to remind them where this country came from. He declared it as the last Thursday of November. When do we celebrate it? 
the fourth. Anybody know why? Again, every time God blesses, people tend to do what? Rebel and turn away. And in Franklin Roosevelt's time as president, they had a fifth Thursday occur in Thanksgiving, which puts Thanksgiving really late, whereas we're having it really early. This, the, the, because we're the fourth, if, if there would have been a fifth, there's a fifth Sunday, is there a fifth Sunday? 23rd? No, there's not. If there were a fifth Sunday, or I'm sorry, a fifth Thursday, there is a fifth Thursday, not a fifth Sunday, but I was thinking a fifth Thursday. Anyway, if there were a fifth Thursday, it would put it late in the year. And Franklin said, we need more time for shopping. That was in his, that was in his words of why he wanted it changed. They settled finally on doing the fourth, officially doing it the fourth Thursday so that it wouldn't be changeable. But again, you have to look at the history. You have to understand Old Testament times. You have to understand the nature of man and woman. And they understand the concept of nations to realize where we've come from. So where does that put us? Let's look at our nation's heritage. Declaration of Independence states that all men are created equal. Actually, it states first that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator by certain, with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty. Three things that come out of that, that our founding fathers clearly stated that we need to state to our children and our grandchildren, there is absolute truth. We hold these truths to be self-evident. There is absolute truth. We don't have relative truth like we have today. That will not get us anywhere. That is not God. Truth comes from what God says, not what man says. So there is absolute truth. The second thing is uh, that the rights that we have come from our creator, God, not from the rights of man, but from what God gives us. And that governments exist only to protect those God-given rights. If we're going to lose those rights as we're doing today, man must first convince us that the rights do not come from God, but come from the state. So when you look to see, when everybody talks about rights today, they talk about the rights as defined by the government, by the state. Therefore, because they define them, they can remove them or put them in. We have lost track of where our rights come from. That's our heritage. Number two, some quotes. Washington states, if, it, if to please the people, we offer what we ourselves disapprove, how can we af afterward defend our work? In other words, if you know this is wrong, why would you allow somebody else to do it? Thomas Jefferson, who was not the godliest man, but understood who God was. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we, re, when we have removed the conviction that these liberties are a gift of God? That's on the Jeffersonian Memorial, by the way. If you ever go there, you can read that. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, I see this truth that God governs in the affairs of man. He was doing that in the middle of the Constitutional Convention when they were trying to figure something out and they had been at an impasse forever. And he gets up and makes this statement and says, we are foolish if we don't think that it's going to take God for this country to, to succeed. I suggest we pray about this. And through prayer, they got past the impasse. Um, Washington states in his farewell address, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. We have much to be thankful for, but I think we've lost track of who to thank. I think we, as a group here, need to be careful that we are the bearers of, and I, I probably have a couple of blanks there. By the way, I, I, uh, one of them was, uh, I don't think I told you that, is, was this, does this nation have a divine calling? Is that one of them? Yeah. Uh, I don't even see it on my notes here. But anyway, I think that's the, the fill-in. And then at the end there, just so that you've got the blanks filled in for the application, uh, God's judgment 
No, uh, God will hold us accountable for our stewardship. We're the beneficiaries of the Christian moral and spiritual heritage. Have I got that in your application? And God's judgment, do I have this one down also? God's judgment is never without an opportunity of repentance. I think that's an extra one that I didn't put in there. And this is a, what kind of battle? A spiritual battle, and I give you the references. You should go and read those, think about those, and say, God, how should I thank you this Thanksgiving? More so than that, how should I as a good steward in my own family group, in my own community group, whatever it is, how should I lead them into understanding our Christian heritage, how God brought this nation through divine circumstances to where it is and how we've walked away from it just like Israel did. That doesn't mean that God cannot call us back, but it takes us as Christians humbling ourselves, repenting, and praying just as the Israelites did. It is a tough, this was a tough lesson for me when I first heard this because it convicted my own soul as to how little thankfulness I really have in the understanding of who I need to be thankful for, for what I have, for where I am. We're out of time. Let me pray for us. Lord, it is so obvious in the study of history that your hand was upon this country, that your hand was upon people to come over to bring a, a revived religion, a revived Christianity to, to uh, correctly understand how to worship you through uh, what, what came out of the, uh, the Reformation. And from that, Lord, you've been a light to the nations. There's no question the United States have been a light to the nations, but we've turned away from that. Lord, we confess that we, your bride of Christ, do not do all that we should be doing, that we are not fully grateful for what we have, that pride sticks its way up into our own, that we think we have what we have because of ourselves. Lord, we're presumptuous to think that you would continue to bless us. Forgive us our sins. Forgive my sins of ungratefulness, my ingratitude of what you've provided in such a great salvation to both me and my wife and my children and my grandchildren and my extended family. Lord, what a blessing that is. There's nothing better. But the blessing of living in the United States we cannot take for granted. We recognize the calling on our own lives. We recognize that you equip us for that calling. Help us to clearly see today, as Marty has, has shown us, that we need to have gratitude in our hearts that's just overflowing. Help me to be a light to those about me. And all we can do is give you the praise and the glory, Lord. All God's people said, amen. amen.